We'll be reading uh, chapter 20 of 1 Kings, 1 Kings 20. Um, and then I'll invite Nolan up here to uh, yeah, bring the word to us. Again, that's going to be chapter 20 of 1 Kings. All right. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers come again and say, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I send to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever places you, uh, places you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sends to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold. And I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord, the king, all that you first demanded of your servant, I will do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice uh, for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, and he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, By the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall bring the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon, while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths. He and the 32 kings who helped him, the servants of the governors of the districts, went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him. Men are coming out from Samaria. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them. And each struck down his man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. Then Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. 
And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring of the uh, the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. And so they they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Ephek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, a man of God, wait, uh, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down of the Assyrians a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Ephek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. But it had also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the king of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came up out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. Then Benedad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man, 
If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be, you yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. Father, we praise you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to, to hear from you, to hear from your word. Father, we know that we desperately need you. Convince us of our need for you this morning, God. And please meet us here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, we'll be in 1 Kings 20 this morning. But to open up... Please turn with me to Luke 14, Luke 14, 28-30. This passage in Luke really illustrates what we have here in 1 Kings 20. Jesus is talking to people who are considering following him. And hear what Jesus says to them. He says, which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build a foundation and is not able to finish. Here, Jesus lays down a very important principle. If you decide to start something, you better finish. I'm sure you've heard this from your parents or or maybe from other wise people, but there's a common phrase, you better finish what you start, right? You better finish what you start. And in Luke 14 here, Jesus specifically applies this principle to following him. If you commit to following him, if you give your life to him, then that means for the rest, of the, the rest of your days, there's no turning back. He has called you to know him, to make him known, to have all your affections, all your thoughts scream, God is my king. Those who commit to Jesus say, he has taken my punishment on the cross, he has delivered me from sin, and he's given me the ability to pursue him. So in light of that grace... For all of my days, I will follow him. There's no turning back. But for those who who start to follow Jesus and then walk away and live like the rest of the world, as for those who who give up on their pursuit of knowing Jesus, of following him, of, of killing their sin, what do they do? They fail to finish the task. They're just like the man in Jesus' illustration who didn't count the cost before he built the building. He laid the foundation, but he couldn't finish it. 
And today in 1 Kings 20, we're looking at a story about a man who failed to finish the task. In 1 Kings 20, Ahab is approached by an opposing army that's much bigger than Israel's army. But God promises to give Ahab the victory. And then in this chapter, we see not one, but two victories that Israel has over the Syrians. God proves himself faithful. And at the end of these battles, King Ahab has King Ben-Hadad in his hands, ready to kill him, ready to finish the task. But what does Ahab do? He compromises. He makes a covenant with Ben-Hadad. He fails to finish the task. So if you know Jesus, if you're here today and you know Jesus, you've been given the task to love him with all, to leave no room for any competing affections, to root out any sin that would keep you from knowing him and loving him. And furthermore, just like Ahab was given a promise, we've also been given the Spirit. That we're not just doing this on our own. We're not just lifting ourselves up by our bootstraps. But we've been given the Spirit to lead us into holiness. To help us see the beauty of Jesus. To help us finish the task. Right? But this passage in 1 Kings 20 shows you and me the danger of giving up on the task. And just like judgment awaited Ahab because he failed to finish the task, if we give up on following Jesus and knowing him and pursuing him, you and I can also expect judgment. So we have a heavy passage in front of us this morning. But my purpose in preaching today is to urge you to finish the task of making Jesus supreme in your life. To finish the task of making Jesus supreme in your life. So here's the structure that we'll be following this morning. In verses 1 through 12, we have a problem. Verses 1 through 12, we have the problem. Then in verses 13 and 14, we have the promise. Then in verses 15 through 30, we have the fulfillment. And in 31 through 43, we have the failure. So we start with the problem, then we have the promise, then the fulfillment, and the failure. So let's dive in. Let's look at the problem. I think just for some background, it might be helpful to know Israel's story in being redeemed from Egypt. So God's people were enslaved to Egypt under Pharaoh, and they were helpless to do anything about their slavery. But then God shows himself as Yahweh, the causer of all, and he delivers them out of Egypt. He displays his infinite power through the plagues. He speaks a word, and all of Egypt's water turns to blood. He speaks another word, all the firstborn of the Egyptians are killed. Then he delivers Israel, he parts the Red Sea, and he drowns the whole Egyptian army, probably the biggest army in the world at the time. And Israel would have been absolutely helpless to defeat them. So in light of God's grace, 
in light of his deliverance of Israel, how does he want them to respond? With passionate love and loyalty to him. Listen to Moses' words right after Israel was delivered in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In other words, in light of the grace that God has shown you, let all your affections, all your thoughts, everything that surrounds you scream to everyone else, My God is King. My God is supreme. So specifically, Israel was supposed to do this to show their love for God by refusing to make a covenant with another nation. Exodus 23, 32-33 prohibits Israel from making any other covenants with any nations. God is speaking to Israel and he says, You shall make no covenant with them in their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So the thought behind this was that if Israel made a covenant with another nation, they would go after those nations' gods. And they wouldn't treat God as supreme anymore. They wouldn't love him with their whole being. And the kings of Israel were tasked with keeping Israel devoted to Yahweh. Helping Israel keep their allegiance to him. And to refuse to make covenants with foreign kings. But we see this morning in chapter 20 that Ahab had a big problem with this. Look at verse 1. It says, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against them. So Ben-Hadad, the king of the Syrians, was coming up on Israel's land. So what was Ahab's job here? To devote him to destruction. But that's not what Ahab decided to do. Instead of devoting him to destruction, he makes an agreement. He compromises. Look at verse 3. Ben-Hadad says to Ahab, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and your children are also mine. And at this point, if you know Israel's history, and you know what they've been commanded to do, what's the obvious response that Ahab is supposed to give here? No way. No way am I making a covenant with you. My devotion is to Yahweh, the king who delivered us out of Egypt. But that's not the approach that Ahab takes. Listen to this response. This is Ahab's response to the king of Syria. He says, It is according to your word. Your word, my Lord or King, and I am yours and all that I have. Immediately, this should cause us to have a huge red flag in our minds. If we think back to God's exclusive demand for worship, this call for exclusive allegiance from Israel, we see that Ahab is totally disregarding this command. Then look in verse 6 with me. 
Ben-Hadad casually tells Ahab that he'll come in and take everything he wants from Ahab's kingdom. Ben-Hadad says, Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. In other words, I'm just going to take whatever I want. And at this point, Ahab goes to the elders of the land. In verse 7, he says, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me my wives, for my wives and my children, and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. He's already compromised. But then in verse 8, the elders are like, what are you doing? What are you doing compromising with this king, making a covenant with this king? And so the elders say, don't listen or consent. In other words, what are you doing, Ahab? So after getting advice from the elders that he should probably fight back, finally he says to the king of Syria, tell my lord the king this thing I cannot do. In other words, I'm not going to give up. And so he does decide to go to battle against Ben-Hadad, but notice that he's already compromised. And he only decides to go to battle after talking to the elders of the land. So you see that he's already compromising. And in verse 9, he's even referring to Ben-Hadad as Lord. Again, another huge red flag should come up in your mind. I think this passage is super relevant for us today. If you think about your day-to-day decisions... You can probably relate to Ahab in a lot of ways. Just like Ahab had to choose whether he was going to stay committed to Yahweh and have everything around him proclaim Yahweh is our king. We choose every moment who we give our allegiance to. And just like the Syrian king was competing for Ahab's loyalty here, we have so many things competing for our loyalty today. Think about what's in the world, the the message we hear from our culture. Think about it. A great career, nice vacations, comfort and ease, the American dream, everything you want. Go for it, right? A big house, a fancy car. The world and the culture around us are competing for our loyalty. And then our flesh, if that wasn't enough. Lies that constantly come in our mind from our flesh. Forget that God tells you to be patient. You deserve to respond to that person in anger. Or what difference does it make if you tell this lie? Who's going to find out about it? What difference will it make? Or you don't really need to fast and pray today. What difference does it make anyway? You can get through the day on your own strength. And then we have the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the devil is constantly trying to get us to denounce our loyalty from God. He says, do you actually believe the Bible is true? Do you really think you'll find satisfaction in obedience? Or even thoughts of doubt. Surely God won't forgive you 
after that mistake. And just like Ahab had to decide who he was going to give his loyalty, who he was going to proclaim as supreme, you and I are making those decisions every day. So what's the problem here? Just like Ahab, we have so many things competing for our loyalty. And God has the right to our exclusive allegiance. All of our affections, all of our thoughts, all of our desires need to scream, Yahweh is my king. In the same way that Israel was delivered from Egypt, if you're in Christ, you've been delivered from your sin. And you owe every thought, every affection to him. But thankfully, he hasn't just given us these commands for obedience. He hasn't just given us the command to be loyal to him. He also sends his spirit. He promises, he promises that the spirit will give us strength to meet these commands. And the second point makes that clear. So Ahab has the promise that God will be with him and give him the victory. Look at verse 13. A prophet comes to Ahab and says, Behold, or excuse me, thus says the Lord, Have you seen this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hands this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. The promise of victory. And Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? And he answered, You. So here Ahab has the promise that God will give him the victory. And notice why God promises Ahab the victory. At the end of verse 13 it says, And you shall know that I am the Lord. And notice here that Lord is in all capital letters. And that means Yahweh, as opposed to other times in the Bible where it's not in in capital letters. And what does Yahweh mean? The causer of all, the causer of all things. And we see the name Yahweh show up first in Exodus. God reveals himself to Moses. As Yahweh, as the causer of all, to show that he's in complete control, that he's all-powerful. I found this quote helpful from from Dr. DeRoshi. He says, In Exodus, Yahweh is the one who can make man's mouth, harden hearts, control nature, including the bringing of plagues and the parting of water. He is the one who punishes Egypt, saves Israel, appears as a consuming fire, and graciously gives instructions to his people. In Exodus, Yahweh is both angry at sin and forgiving of it. He stands over all things, and yet is personally involved in everything. To declare God by his name Yahweh is to affirm the absolute him. To declare God by his name Yahweh is to affirm him, the absolute sovereign of the universe, the one from whom and through whom and by implication to whom All things exist. Yahweh means he causes to be. So the all-powerful, all-holy creator of the universe has just promised Ahab this victory. 
The God who spoke creation into existence with a mere word. The one who is over all things, who controls history according to the counsel of his will. So what what should this tell you about Ahab's success? It's guaranteed, because it's guaranteed by Yahweh himself. And he promises Ahab this victory so that Ahab will know that Yahweh is king, that Yahweh is God. So his reputation is on the line. And in the same way that this all-powerful God promised Ahab the victory, it's the same way for you and I, right? If you're in Christ, God promises you and I victory over sin. He promises that every one of his own will have victory over sin. People who don't know Jesus, who don't have the Spirit, they can have no victory over sin because they're slaves to it. But if we have the Spirit, He's given us new desires. He's given us the ability to overcome temptation. Listen to Ezekiel when he talks about the promise of the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 27. Here God is promising His Spirit to His people in the New Covenant. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Notice the I wills here. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So notice that if you're truly in Christ, your holiness is not up to chance. He declares, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will take you from the nations and sprinkle clean water on you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. He promises to give us new desires. And he promises to give us the strength to obey him. So that our obedience, praise the Lord for this. It doesn't depend on our own power. By his infinite power, Yahweh, the same one we've been talking about, he he promises to give us victory over sin. So if you're discouraged about your own fight with sin and you think, man, how am I ever going to overcome my laziness? How can I ever overcome my anger? How can I ever overcome my lust, my fear of man? Fill in the blank. If you truly know Christ, then you have the Spirit. And with the Spirit, He's promised you victory over sin. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It doesn't sound like it's up to chance, does it? He's promised us victory over sin. So what's the promise in this passage? In the same way that God promised Ahab victory over his enemies, against the ones who were competing for his affections, God promises to send the Spirit to give us victory over sin. Not mere commands, 
but promise, a promise of the power to overcome sin. So in part three, we have the fulfillment of the promise. And this is probably the craziest part of this chapter. These are two of the greatest military victories that Israel has in all of Bible, in all of the Bible. First, just notice how big of an underdog Israel is. Verse 1 tells us that Ben-Hadad has 32 other kings fighting with him. These might not have been actual kings of other nations, but at least 32 other commanders fighting with him. And he has horses and chariots. Meanwhile, what does Ahab have? 7,000 soldiers. And the text makes it pretty clear that these guys are young and inexperienced. So you have this great king of Syria with 32 kings or 32 commanders with him. Then you have Ahab with how many? With 7,000. And Ben-Hadad is, is very confident that he'll win the victory. And in verse 16, it says he was drinking himself drunk in the booths. Think about that. He's so confident that he's just drinking. He's just like, yeah, we have the victory. There's no need for me to be on the alert. And it makes sense from a worldly standpoint, right? He's got 32 other commanders with him against an army of 7,000. But look at verse 20. They go to battle. And it says, Each Israelite struck down his own man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. So the language here makes it clear that Israel totally destroyed the Syrians. And by using such a small army, God makes it so clear that he's the one responsible for the victory. Because there's no way this could have happened otherwise. This huge Syrian army with all the finest weapons, all the finest chariots, ends up running from this tiny army of 7,000. And if that wasn't enough, look at verse 21. It says, The king of Israel went out and struck the horses and the chariots, and struck the Syrians with a great blow. So the text is just emphasizing here. This is a great victory for Israel. And there's no way they could have done it on their own. So he wins the first battle. But I wonder if after the first battle, Ahab might have thought, man, I wonder if we just won by mere chance. I wonder if that was just our own wisdom or our own strength. Or I wonder if something happened to the Syrians that just made them flee. Could it have really been God that gave us the victory? We won the battle because, because Yahweh, maybe he thinks, is a God of the mountains. But is he really a God of the hills? And the Syrians were thinking along the same lines. They thought they could outsmart God if they just got Israel down in the valley. Because the first battle was up in the mountains. But if they go down in the valley, the Syrians think, maybe we can outsmart Yahweh. Maybe, maybe we can outsmart the God that gave them this victory. Look at verse 23. This is the Syrians scheming to defeat Israel in a second battle. 
Their gods are gods of the hills. So they are stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. So notice the mindset of the Syrians here. They think they can outsmart Yahweh, the causer of all, the one who knows all things. They think maybe Yahweh won't be, won't be able to deliver his people this time. They imagine that God is just like other idols, just like the gods that Israel has been worshiping, just like the gods that, that all the other nations worship. That he could be limited and, and domesticated to a certain place. That he's not really in control. And that once they get out of his place of control, boom, the victory is theirs. But let's see how this second battle goes. Let's see if they can really outsmart God. In this second battle, we'll see that the author makes totally clear that these victories have nothing to do with Israel. So they're in the valley where the Assyrians think they can get the victory, or where the Syrians think they can get the victory. And maybe they can outsmart God. But look at verse 29. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. Listen to this. And the people of Israel struck down of the, of the Syrians a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day. Listen to that. A hundred thousand of the Syrian foot soldiers in one day. And this is probably the greatest victory that Israel has ever had. And how many people do they have in their army? Seven thousand. It makes clear that the Syrians were scared out of their minds. And this text describes Israel like two little flocks of goats. Two little flocks of goats compared to an army of 100,000. And yet they kill 100,000 of the Syrians in a single day. So is the God of Israel a God of the valleys? I think we can say yes, right? He's not just the God of the mountains. And not only did these 100,000 soldiers die, but if you read with me in the story, it says 27,000 more die when they go to retreat from Israel. And notice who makes the walls fall when they go back to retreat to their city. Look at verse 30. It says, And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Now the battle is already done. And they've gone back to their city to take refuge from Israel. So there are no Israelite soldiers around. It's just them. And then 27,000 of them die because the wall falls down. So who made the wall fall down? It had to have been God. Again, God makes totally clear that he is the one in control of this battle. That he is the one giving Israel the victory. So in giving Israel this second victory, God shows the greatest armies in the world cannot stop him from fulfilling his purpose. 
And nothing can keep him from delivering on his promises to his people. His promises are always sure. And in the same way that God fulfills his promise here, God fulfills his promise to help his people defeat sin every day. God indwells his people and he promises to give them new affections, new desires for him and the ability to defeat sin. And time and time again, if you think about history, you see this happen. Think about the Apostle Paul, the chief of sinners in the Bible. He was killing Christians. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He was at Stephen's death as Stephen was being stoned. But then what happens? On the road to Damascus, his whole life changes. He meets Jesus. Jesus invades his life. And boom, his life is turned around. God fulfilled his promise. He ends up spreading the gospel to all the known world at the time. And he risks his life for the sake of the gospel. Could there be a bigger change in his life? God fulfilled his promise to Paul to make him holy. One of my favorite stories is is from John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader and a sailor. He was like the worst of the worst. Yeah, I wouldn't even want to go into detail uh, on the life he lived before he came to Jesus. He he lived in open sexual immorality. Several slaves died on his ships from ill treatment. But one day, his ship gets in a wreck. And he cries to Jesus for help. He had heard about Jesus from his mom growing up. So he thought, oh, maybe Jesus will help me. And sure enough, from that desperate cry, probably even with ill intentions, Jesus meets him that day. And how does his life change? How does God fulfill his promise to John Newton? John Newton ended up becoming one of the greatest proponents to outlaw slavery in England. And he spends the rest of his life preaching, testifying to God's grace. And he would write amazing grace. And I'm sure you know many people who you could say the same about. Man, before they started following Jesus, their life was totally different. But Jesus invaded their lives and now their thoughts are different. They hang out with different people. You can't explain the difference in their life apart from Jesus. And what is that? God is fulfilling his promise to his people. And think about yourself. If you truly know Jesus today, and you think about your life before you met him, compared to after, you might not have had a crazy experience like the Apostle Paul or John Newton, but you can look back at your life and say, man, I have different thoughts. Man, I think about death differently. I don't enjoy hanging out with the people who I used to. I don't enjoy indulging in the sins that I used to. If you're truly in Jesus, you can say that of yourself. God is fulfilling his promise to you. To give you victory over sin. And if you don't see that in your life, if you don't see Jesus working in such a way that you desire new things, then you don't know him. Because he always fulfills his promise. To make his people holy. So if that's you, if you can't think of a time in your life when there's been a change of affections, of desires, then please repent. Because you haven't met Jesus. 
So what do we see here in this part of the text? That God fulfills his promises. Just like God fulfilled his promise to give Ahab the victory over this huge army. God fulfills his promises to us by giving us the victory over sin. By changing our lives. So the next part of the text describes the failure. So God has just fulfilled two, or he's fulfilled a promise. And Israel has just had two huge victories over the Syrians. Look at verse 31. The Syrians, at this point, are begging for mercy from Israel. Verse 31 said, And Ben-Hadad's servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put, put sackcloth and ashes around our waist, and ropes on our heads, and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So Ben-Hadad sends out these messengers to Ahab, because he's begging for mercy at this point. But we looked at Exodus earlier, and we know that God demands exclusive worship from his people. That he desires that they would make no covenants with any foreign kings. Remember, Exodus says, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. So in light of this command, what should Ahab's response here be? Absolutely not. There's no room, or there should be no room in Ahab's heart, to make this covenant with Ben-Hadad. But look at verse 32 with me. Let's look at what Ahab does. He says, Yeah, I'll start at the beginning of 32. So they tied their sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant, Ben-Hadad, says, Please let me live. And listen to Ahab's response here. And he said, Does he live? He is my brother. Again, that should cause a huge red flag to show up in your mind. He's calling this foreign king his brother. And he's ready to make a compromise with this king. What is he doing? He's refusing to finish the task that God had given him. So Ben-Hadad, in making this covenant, says in verse 34, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Syria. So this is Ahab's chance to show his exclusive devotion to Yahweh. To show that he's going to finish the task that God gave him. After God gave him these two victories. And Ben-Hadad is literally in the palm of his hands. All he has to do is execute him. But in verse 34, we see that's not what Ahab does. Look at verse 34. And Ben-Hadad said to him, yeah, the cities that... Yeah, so we read that verse already. So yeah, at the end of verse 34, Ahab responds. He says, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. 
So Ahab directly here is disobeying the instructions given in Exodus 23 to make no covenant with any foreign nation. And then then in the rest of the story, we have a prophet come to Ahab and rebuking Ahab because he failed to finish the task. As a way to illustrate Ahab's disobedience in refusing to kill Ben-Hadad, this prophet enacts this, this story. It says in verse 35, And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Keep reading with me. In verse 36, he says, Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion will strike you down. And then what happens? A lion strikes him down. Because of the man's refusal to kill the prophet by the word of the Lord, he's killed by a lion. Now, does this remind you of Ahab? He failed to finish the task. He failed to kill Ben-Hadad. Then in verse 38, the prophet appears before Ahab and tells him a story about a prisoner of war who was let go. But the one who let the prisoner of war go was put to death. Because the one who let the prisoner of war go failed to finish the task. Then in verse 42, the prophet condemned Ahab for letting Ben-Hadad go alive. Look at verse 42. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord. This is the prophet speaking to Ahab. Because you have let go out of your hand the man who I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. So because Ahab refused to kill Ben-Hadad, God will put Ahab to death. Ahab's just been given this, vic- this big victory, and all he has to do is put him to death by the word of the Lord. And God had devoted Ben-Hadad to destruction. But Ahab fails to follow through. He fails to finish the task. And then the end of verse 42, Your life, Ahab, shall be for his life. He's condemned for not finishing the task. And then in verse 43, Ahab doesn't even repent. Look at Ahab's reaction in verse 43. He says, And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. In other words, he's not even repentant. He still refuses to acknowledge God as the one who gave him the victory over the Syrians. He still just decides to ignore God's commands and to compromise with the world, to fail to finish the task. And all over Scripture, God promises blessings to those who persevere to the end. And just like what happens here, He promises curse to those who fail to finish the task He gives them. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, listen to this, without which no one 
we'll see the Lord. The author of Hebrews makes so clear that without holiness, without continued growth, no one will see the Lord. Look at the promise Jesus gives to the people who persevere in Revelation 2.26. Here Jesus is speaking to the church in, in Thyatira. And he says, the one who conquers, the one who finishes the task, in other words, who keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. So the one who perseveres, the one who does Jesus' work until the end, will receive authority and blessing from Jesus. On the other hand, God promises to curse those who fail to persevere to the end. In Hebrews 10, there's a dire warning given from the author of Hebrews about those who were once enlightened but go on sinning. Look with me at Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving this knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of his covenant, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So if you, knowing Jesus, decide to spend the rest of your life pursuing him, knowing him, killing your sin, showing your devotion to Yahweh as the one who's supreme over all, as the one who gave you the victory over, over your sin, and the one who deserves a lifetime of your obedience. You'll show that he has truly saved you. That you are his. That you belong to him. And you will receive his blessing in the end. On the other hand, if you follow in Ahab's footsteps. And neglect God's promise to give you victory over the world, over your sin, over the flesh, over the devil. And you live a, life, a lifestyle of sin. And you fail to finish the task that was given to you. Then judgment awaits you. You've shown that you've never been saved in the first place. You've never met the one who can give you victory over sin. So just like Ahab suffered God's judgment because he refused to finish the task. If we abandon God's promise. If we refuse to acknowledge him as king over our lives. And we go on living a lifestyle of disobedience to him, abandoning him. We will also suffer judgment. So if you're here today and you know Jesus, 
And he's saved you. He's given you a task to treat him as supreme over every part of your life. So that all your thoughts, all your motives, all your actions, everything in your life screams, my God is supreme. My God is one. There's no room for competing affections. No room for competing loyalties. No room for any idols. God is jealous for your worship. So you need to finish the task of putting Jesus on the throne of your life and rooting out any idols that would distract you from worshiping. And the good news is, if this task intimidates you like it does me, as we saw this morning, God always keeps his promises. And if you've truly trusted in him, just like God gave Ahab the victory over the Syrians twice, he's promised to conform you into the image of Christ, and he will fulfill that promise. The same God in this chapter, the God of the mountains, the God of the valleys, the one who can give Israel an army of 7,000 victory over an army of 100,000, the one who can speak creation into existence with a mere word, is the one who promises to conform you to Jesus' image. And if you're truly his, He will fulfill his promise by making you holy. So if that's you today and you truly know Jesus, let his promises motivate you to continue making him king over your life. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if you haven't put your trust in him, then none of this applies to you. You've had no victory over sin in your life. You think thoughts that dishonor God. You have motives that dishonor Him. And you have absolutely no hope to overcome sin. You're a slave to sin. And think about this for a moment. You have a holy and good God, a just God, who promises to punish sin. Just like a good judge has to approve of what is good and punish what is evil. In the same way, a good and holy God has to approve of what is good and punish what is evil. And if you've committed sin, he will punish you if you don't trust in Jesus. But if you desire the God of this universe to be your own, if you desire a restored relationship with this God, if you're beginning to recognize your own wickedness and your need for help, in your need for God to rescue you from your own sin, then there's good news because Jesus is a friend of sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost. So he was God in the flesh, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son came down as fully God and he lived a perfect life. He obeyed every single law that was given to him. He overcame temptation several times And as a result of living his perfect life, he was able to offer an acceptable sacrifice on our behalf. So he went to the cross, and what happened on the cross is he took the punishment for his people's sin. So the same judgment that will justly come down on you if you don't receive Jesus, came down on Jesus on that day for his people. And for those who receive him and trust in him, he took the punishment. And in exchange, he gives his people 
his perfect obedience, his track record of perfect obedience, in such a way that when the Father looks down, he sees Jesus' track record on you, if you've trusted in him, because Jesus took your sin on him. That's how God is just and the justifier of those who put their faith in him. All the blessings earned from Jesus' perfect obedience are available to you if you would come to him. Psalm 1611 says, At his right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. There's fullness of joy in your presence, O God. So if you would come and leave your sin and recognize that you need help, and you would commit to following Jesus, to finishing the task, he will renew you, he will promise to give you victory over sin, and he will fulfill that promise if you would trust in him. So we have the God of the universe today inviting us to follow him, to love him, to make him supreme over our lives, to show that he is the one who is worthy of our obedience. And if you are in him, see this as motivation to keep him as sovereign over your life, to keep on destroying the idols in your life, anything that would compete for your affections. Anything that would distract you from knowing and loving him, the one who died to save you. All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we praise you for this message of the gospel. Uh, Thank you for how we see it here in 1 Kings 20. I pray that it would uh, continue to pierce our hearts uh, and that we would continue to be conformed into the image of your son. We praise you that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness by your Spirit, uh, and you will fulfill your promise to make your people holy. Thank you that we can trust in that promise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please stand with us.